This is a reading from the book of Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. God, now we pray this fourth Advent Sunday that you would give us a glimpse and a picture of the glory of Christmas. Lord, of the uh, gritty scene in, that, uh, in, in the, those uh, um, towns of Israel in the first century, that we might understand and that we might know that these were real people and real events with real challenges, and that what it means for us to celebrate Christmas is to acknowledge that God became a man. Father, we thank you now. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit and that you would convict and convince us of the truth, of the word of God. Your word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Well, my children always take a risk when they watch movies with me, uh, especially at home. I'm a huge critic. Um, if something is a little outlandish, I can suspend my disbelief for an hour or so. Uh, but if it's utterly ridiculous, I just spend the whole time mumbling insults under my breath, you know, uh, to the director or the actors or the scenes. And, you know, I get this, Dad, um, I'm a huge critic. I've recently noticed that in action movies, um, there's always, it always seems like it comes down to one guy. The whole world is being threatened, and it's all riding on one guy, one person. The fate of the whole planet rests on one person. You know, there's this multinational terrorist organization, and, you know, they're fumbling over themselves to beat one person, you know, who's foiling their plans. It's all riding on one guy. And sometimes it works, you know. Sometimes uh, he barely skates by by the skin of his teeth, and it feels like, wow, you know, at any moment, this, you know, uh, the, you know he's going to lose, or, you know, the good guys aren't going to make it. But other times, uh, to quote my father, it's pure cinematic chicanery. <laughs> um, you know, take Jason Bourne, for example. Um, the first movie was kind of believable. Um, but as the series developed, he became kind of superhuman. 
You know, not only does the guy do incredible martial arts, but he's an expert in every weapon system. He can pick up any weapon, and he knows how to fire it, disassemble it, and he's an expert marksman on top of that. And he does parkour. You know, he can judge the distance between rooftops where, that he's never been to before and know exactly how much run-up speed he needs to jump from one roof to the next. And when he lands, he rolls and answers his cell phone. You know, and he's always in the right place at the right time. You know, it's like Santa Claus. He knows if you've been naughty or nice. He's everywhere. He's always in the right place at the right time. And me, with my critical uh, self, you know, after a while, I just go, oh, come on. You know, uh, while the person next to me wants to strangle me because they're enjoying themselves. Now, someone here, of course, is thinking, uh, well, Jordan, you've got to understand the backstory. You know, he was trained by the government to be a, a human weapon, and he's trying to get his life back, and they screwed up his life, and so he went rogue, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most heroes in our stories, um, in our culture, are rooted in some extraordinary circumstances, like Jason Bourne. Now, if it isn't obvious by now, our infatuation with these heroes reveals something important, and that's a preoccupation that we have with the messianic. This idea that one man can save the world. We don't even realize how it's at work in us. In fact, uh, the story of Superman, which may have been the first modern superhero, certainly had a very messianic character um, when he was created back in the 1930s. Superman himself is somewhat of a messiah character, a savior of the world. Um, and in many ways, it's completely appropriate for us to have this messianic preoccupation, my own criticisms notwithstanding. Because we know deep down that we all need to be saved, and we know that we can't save ourselves. And we know we're not up for the task. But unlike the heroes in our popular imagination, consider Jesus' own story of incarnation, story of God becoming a man. It's obscure. It's an obscure story. Modest, even. God created the world and human beings good, they ruined the world through rebellion, bringing darkness into the world. God promises uh, to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. And the Bible, at least the Old Testament, is very much the saga of Israel's rise and fall with the nations and the maintenance of God's ongoing promise to redeem humanity through all of these ups and downs captivity and the judgments and all of these different things going on. Um, and the whole story narrows and continues to narrow until it narrows down to the tip of a spear or a pinpoint. And what we're left with here in our story this morning, what we're given is this, this cosmic story finding its uh, fulfillment in the prayers of a Jewish teenage girl. 
The angel appears, we all know the story. The angel appears to Mary to tell her that she's, um, even though she's never been with a man, she's going to be pregnant, and she's going to give birth to a child, which will actually be the Son of God, who will save his people from their sins and establish an eternal kingdom. This humble girl in the Mediterranean receives a message from God through the angel that she is to be the instrument of God's redemptive plans and purposes for not only Israel, but the whole world. And when you read that, you tremble to think that the fate of the world is resting on the responses of two teenagers. I mean, there's drama in this story. You know, we read it and we know the story, and most of us have heard it many times, but there's a lot of drama here. All of God's plans boil down to this interaction with this Jewish teenage girl and her response to the message she receives from the angel Gabriel. How many times must Mary have gone over the angel's words as she felt Jesus, the baby in her womb, kicking against her uterus, recalling what she heard from the angel? Philip Yancey is a Christian author. Many of you have heard of him. He writes, nine months of awkward explanations, lingering scent of scandal, it seems almost as if God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his entrance, as if to avoid any accusation of favoritism. He writes, I'm impressed that when the Son of God became a human being, he played by the rules, harsh rules. Small towns do not treat kindly young boys who grow up with questionable paternity. And in our modern times of family planning clinics offering ways to correct mistakes um, that might disgrace a family name, it's extremely improbable that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. But the Virgin Mary, whose family wasn't planned, had a different response. She hears the angel out, pondered the enormous consequences and replies, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. I want you just to think about that for a moment. She hears this message. She's never known a man. She's going to conceive and give birth to a child. Miraculously. And this child will be the promised one of the prophets, of the scriptures she grew up on. She's going to be that instrument whereby the Savior of the world comes into being. And her response is, I'm the Lord's servant. And we think, well, of course she said that. Mary, you know, is this super faithful woman but in many ways, we should think of Mary, not to denigrate Mary in any way, but in many ways, we should think of Mary like us. She was a human being. She had hopes and dreams, and 
No doubt, as a young bride-to-be was planning her wedding, she had her own plans before God's plans invaded her life. She was probably thinking of the wedding invite list, the venue, the food they should serve, maybe the names of her and Joseph's future children, how many kids they would have. You know, nervous about her first night alone with her future husband. And all of that is interrupted and derailed by God himself. Why? Well, because God has other plans for her. She's got her own plans. And God says, Mary, I've got other plans for you. The angel says, you are highly favored by God. Here's what's going to happen. He doesn't say, will you agree to this? That's important, right? Uh, God is sovereign. God is in control of our lives. And God speaks to the angel Gabriel, and he says, here's what's going to happen. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Most of you are thinking, wow, I don't have any say in this. You know, I was thinking Matthew or... John or something. He will be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. And what the angel has announced is, yes, amazing and grand and glorious on one level, but it's also terrifying. Right? I mean, think about that. It's, it's a terrifying declaration. Because it's not all roses, right? I mean, she's immediately thinking of the implications of scandal. Now, some of you have maybe never thought about this. That the announcement that she is to become pregnant before she's actually been married, right? She's betrothed to Joseph, but she hasn't actually been married The ceremony hasn't happened. They haven't consummated the marriage. And she pops up pregnant, right? So there's glory and there's pain here. And both of those things together are held for Mary. She hears the news, but she also thinks all of the what-ifs. And the, wait a minute, but, right? There's all of those things working in the back of her head. And it's kind of like when we think about the struggle with hearing God's plans for our life, we think about Moses. God comes to Moses in a burning bush, speaks to him and says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And does Pharaoh say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Excuse me, Moses. Does Moses say that? What does Moses say? Moses says, "Uh, yeah, you've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong person here. I'm not the guy. No, not the guy. Not me. Just keep keep on moving down the road. You know, his first response is, no way. No way, God. I'm the wrong person for this. And you know, God comes to each of us in our own lives and at times interrupts our own plans for our life. And we have we have an option to respond. Well, like Moses responded, God, you're messing up my plans here. This isn't what I want for my life. Or like Mary, 
who recognizes, well, uh, God is going to have his will in my life, and there is a blessing, an inherent blessing in accepting what God wants for me. And she says, I am your servant. Now, we might want to say, well, why was she so willing to yield to God's plans? Perhaps she remembered Isaiah 14 as a good observant Jew would, which was, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or maybe she had in mind Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Maybe those were the passages she was thinking of. But you know, as a faithful Hebrew who knew her scriptures, she was probably not likely to take Jeremiah 29, 11 and apply it to herself. Why? Because that would have been completely divorcing that passage from the context, like we kind of do as modern Christians. We kind of treat scriptures like cookie, uh, fortune cookie messages. We take a verse and we just extract it right out of the context and we say, oh, that's for me. The message, of course, in Jeremiah was to Israel, who was in captivity, that God's original plan for them to prosper them in the land would come to pass. So when God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans of good and not of evil, the context is he's speaking to Israel in captivity. doesn't mean that we can't apply that verse to ourselves, but it means that we should understand first the context in which it's written in. I don't think that's what's going on in Mary's mind. I think she realizes that there is a great work of God happening. And there's two edges to it. Joy and pain. Joy of bearing the Son of God against the cloud of scandal, to mention nothing of the fact that later on it says her own soul would be pierced. A lot of us in here have children, and I don't know if there's anyone here that's lost children, but the idea that your own son, your own child would die before you, such an excruciating and torturous death is unthinkable, unbearable. All of that waits for Mary in her future. There's joy and there's pain. And you know, that's the Christian life for us. Our life is filled with duty. It's filled with joy. It's filled with often incredible moments of spiritual ecstasy and praise and reward. And it's also filled with disappointments. It's filled with hurt. It's filled with letdowns. And at times, your life is filled with trauma. And none of it means that God doesn't love you. And none of those troubles in your life mean that God is not with you. That God has somehow abandoned his purpose for you. There's something called um, the retributive principle that most of us kind of function by. The book of Job is a great illustration of the retributive principle. When Job falls uh, into these circumstances of suffering and trauma, his friends say, clearly you must have done something wrong because good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And the message of the book of Job, 
which is a complex book, is actually that's just a principle, but not a law. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and sometimes good things happen to bad people. Mary, we would think, for this incredible blessing and willingness to do God's will, should have, you know, nothing but smooth sailing ahead. Boom, there's her reward. No problem. Problem-free existence because you obeyed God. That's kind of our culture, kind of where Christianity has found itself in the late modern era of, you know, the West, right? If you love God, good things will happen. And that's true. A lot of good things do happen. But sometimes bad things happen too, along with the good. And life is this interweaving of both of those things together. Mary sees what's in front of her. She knows there's joy and pain, there's reward and there's trauma, and she embraces it. Why? Because this is the will of God. This is for the glory of God, for the salvation of his people and the world, that his kingdom might be established. And the remarkable thing about it all is, while kings and princes and rulers are deciding the future of you know, geopolitics, God is pleased to use little people like Mary and you and me for the day-to-day -day operations of the kingdom of God. Someone here is saying, I'm not a little person. You know, compare, compared to people who run the planet, we're little people. And God is pleased to unpack his purposes of redemption for the world with little people like us. That's where the, that, this is where the, this is, this is the, the true beauty of the story of Christmas. Is that while all of these things are going on on the world stage, God, his presence, is with a young teenage girl and her husband, who have financial struggles, you know, who don't have a lot of power and influence, who don't come from noble lineage or have political connections. God is with these little people. While men are making, you know, themselves great, making their names great, boasting of their own power, abusing power, God Almighty is with this little family, this little woman, and he's present with her. His divine plan for the ages, his purpose to defeat Satan himself, is being unpacked with this little teenager and her husband. And he's not worried about scandal. He wants willing vessels and that's what God wants from us. He wants willingness. He wants surrender. Yielding to God's plans for Mary is about self-denial. You know, there's a cost to discipleship. Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? Salvation's free, but discipleship does cost us something. And this is where we wrestle with our faith because sometimes it's 
It's hard to pay that cost of discipleship. And what's the cost? The cost is self-denial. Yielding to God's plans in that moment for Mary was ultimately about self-denial. But there's a reward, an incredible reward. She becomes the central figure holding together the scenes of the birth of Christ. This young girl is God's chosen vessel for intervening in human history to bring forth an everlasting kingdom. And on one hand, her response secures her place in God's household, but on the other hand, it jeopardizes her place in Joseph's household. Joel Green, commentator, writes, For her, partnership in the purpose of God transcends the claims of family. Remember earlier, we were talking a moment, I think when I, during the greeting, about about family. For her, the purposes of God transcend family. And Mary, who seems uh, so low in any measure of rank, her age, her family heritage, her gender, and so on, she turns out to be the one favored by God. Not the rich and powerful, not the political elite, She's the one who finds favor with God. This one who has low status. And she finds her status and identity in her obedience to God and his plan of salvation. So I want to say to you this morning, I don't know what uh, you're finding your identity in this morning. Maybe it's being a good student or a really good producer at work someone who really cranks out the numbers. Or, you know, maybe you're good at sports, or you're good at, um, you know, fill in the blank. Maybe that's where your identity is. But, you know, all of those things are subject to come crashing down on us if God interrupts our plans. Our identity has to be rooted and grounded in Christ and Him alone. Yesterday, my daughter graduated from college, this is my second college grad in the house, and I'm so thankful and so grateful. My wife and I looked at, my wife looked at me yesterday, and with tears in her eyes and my eyes, she said, we did it. And I was so happy. She has a math degree now, and is planning to, she's raising support to be a missionary in Malawi, Africa. But that wasn't her plan. She was plan, planning to be a mechanical engineer. She graduated high school. She was really good at math and science. And at her high school graduation, a scout from Northrop Grumman showed up. A scout in the systems engineering department showed up. And it was just a $500 scholarship, but he gave her his card and said, you call me, I have an internship for you. And she did. And she called him, and he hired her, and right out the gate out of high school, 20 bucks an hour. She's working with all the systems engineers while she was in college, doing all of her prerequisites for, to be a mechanical engineer. And she was doing really well and really excited, and they were talking to her about her starting salary, and it was this huge figure. And she's 18 years old, right out of high school. And she enrolled in the engineering program at Cal State Long Beach and talked to the head of the program who said, you just need these 
few more classes to matriculate, and you're good to go when the next program starts on this date. So she did what he said. She shows up ready to enroll for the first day of the engineering program, and they told her, you've missed one class. You can't transfer into the program. And she was told that she had all the right classes, but she missed it and would have to wait a whole nother year. Well, while that year was going on, Maribel and I and our two younger kids moved here to St. Louis to um, come to seminary. And her and our oldest daughter found themselves deciding whether they wanted to stay. They were adults or whether they wanted to come here. And she came here and was at SLU and decided uh, at SLU that she um, wanted to do math and met a missionary family uh, from Malawi, Africa, and just through the leading of the Lord in prayer, went from wanting to be a mechanical engineer, it's a great career, by the way, uh, to wanting to teach at a school in Malawi, Africa, to teach math in Africa. And there was a lot of heartache for her in that whole process, lots of tears, lots of money spent. And she decided and recognized and realized that God just had other plans for her. And when God comes interrupting, you know, he comes knocking, when God comes calling, we have to hold our own plans loosely. My wife's, one of my wife's favorite passages of scripture um, is from the Proverbs, which says that many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's will that prevails. For Mary and all of her plans... It was the Lord's will that prevailed. The Lord's will that prevailed. Maybe you've never considered how um, all of the things that have happened in your life, maybe even the disappointments, were actually God's perfect plan for you. Maybe you've never thought about that. Maybe where you're at right now, even in this building right now, is exactly where God wants you. Because a lot of us would say, where I'm at in my life right now isn't exactly how I pictured it, right? A lot of us would say that. I kind of thought I would do this. I mean, I, I wanted to be a dentist. <laughs> I wanted to be a dentist. I had a great experience as a kid with a childhood dentist. She was fantastic. And I thought, that's what I wanted to be, you know? But a lot of us don't realize that even the things that, um, that detour us are in God's sovereign hand, that his will ultimately prevails. And that's not something we should mourn. That's something we should celebrate. May we be like Mary to recognize that we're favored by God. That the derailment of plans, of our own plans, in exchange for God's plans, actually is not a mistake, but it's the result of the fact that God's grace is upon us. The Greek word used there for favor is the same word for grace. We're the objects of God's grace. And may we, like Mary, say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said. Let's pray. God, now we thank you 
for the example in our sister, Mary, the mother of the Son of God. Lord, we pray and ask that you would, this Christmas season, help us to hold our plans loosely. Not that we shouldn't make plans, but that we would have a heart of surrender to see ourselves as servants of the Most High, willing, ready to do your commands, to go where you would send us and to do what you would have us to do to obey the calling on our lives, us little people who you have chosen to run the day-to-day operations in the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.